Hello, and thank you for listening to the American Civil War Podcast. Today we have episode 25, The Revolution of 1860, Jefferson and Calhoun at War. We previously mentioned how the Democrats delayed their own convention such that it occurred after the Republicans in Chicago. That is, however, not the whole story. There's a lot more going on. At the beginning of the year of 1860, it might have appeared as though success and the presidential election was theirs for the taking. Despite the rough reputation of the Buchanan administration, which we will definitely return to later, the Republicans were still in the process of forming their coalition. Stephen Douglas, for one, liked his odds in the general election. But with, among other events, John Brown's hanging still looming over the nation, the convention took place in an atmosphere of mistrust and fear. And by a spectacularly ill-timed coincidence, that convention, the Democratic National Convention, happened to take place in Charleston, South Carolina, the home of fire-eating secession. And not coincidentally, the heart of the nullification crisis. Many, though certainly not all, Southerners went into the convention with a singular goal in mind, to rule or to ruin. Rule, in this case, meant to elect a Southern pro-slavery candidate. Ruin, to them, meant to ruin Stephen Douglas and, if necessary, shatter the Democrats, rather than submit to any candidate not of their choosing. This faction included the Lower South, more or less. Now, the ostensible reason for their fury was Douglas's supposed betrayal over the Lecompton Constitution and slavery in Kansas. We should recall, however, that Douglas always maintained popular sovereignty. But in a more fundamental sense, the most ardent pro-slavery Southern Democrats had finally slipped off their leash without John C. Calhoun to hold it steadily. Still, the majority rejected the Southern Democrats' view on national slavery policy at this time, despite all the overheated atmosphere in Charleston. The heat wasn't just from the warm weather arriving with late April, but from the hot air admitted from self-appointed orators, who held forth on the secession, slavery, and Southern civilization nightly. More specifically, the Southern delegates demanded a federal slave code for the territories in the party platform, which they obtained only when Oregon and California delegates joined the main committee. This broke against Douglas's popular sovereignty plan by one vote. But as often happened, Douglas won on the political ground again, for the convention as a whole adopted his views and denied the committee. And yet dangerously, the party divide among Democrats was now almost totally based on region and Southerners believed or wished to believe that they were merely defending their own instead of being the aggressors. James McPherson's battle cry freedom quotes William Yancey, an old Calhounite, as saying, What right of yours have we of the South ever invaded? Ours are now the institutions which are at stake. Ours is the peace that is to be destroyed. Ours is the property that is to be destroyed. Ours is the honor at stake. And yet these demands backfired on them, as always, for the Northern Democrats had their own votes, and they were as intent on electing Stephen Douglas as the Southerners were on destroying him. The reason, simply enough, was that Stephen Douglas by this time remained about the only strong politician left in the North. Although he had been responsible for most of their fall, 
Northern Democrats also recognized that their collective political future lay with Douglas. If he rose again, they might rise again with him. By this time, it had become obvious that acceding to pro-slavery demands would only wreck what remained of the party's support north of the Mason-Dixon. So, to a degree, they had no other option. They could no longer willingly stretch out their necks for the slave drivers to slash at again. But the Lower South delegates were not joking. They all walked out, straight out the door, and refused to participate in the convention again. Having failed to rule, they chose ruin. Douglas had actually hoped a few of them would leave, but only the few, and thereby weaken his opposition and make it look radical and stupid. But too many chose to walk out with the extremists. Chagrined, Douglas now faced an even worse problem. The convention chairman, a man named Caleb Cushing, decided, though perhaps incorrectly on the written rules, that the convention still required a two-thirds majority of the whole rather than merely those remaining, in order to select the presidential candidate. That meant that Douglas, or anyone else, still needed the same number of votes to win, but it was now impossible to actually do that. In fact, no one could do it with the dissenting faction keeping firmly away from the convention hall. After 57 ballots, the party failed to unite on any candidate at all. Some alternatives to Douglas were certainly tried, but Douglas, with his support locked in, would not yield. He likely recognized that this might be his only and final chance to become president, having failed in previous conventions. But furthermore, Douglas was loyal to his party. He was not foolish, and he saw that in order to rescue it in the North, he would have to lead it. No one else could. The men he refused to yield to, however, include some interesting figures. Among them, Senator Joseph Lane from Oregon and Senator Andrew Johnson of Tennessee. Lane, though representing a free state, was ardently pro-slavery and lay on the very last inch of his political career. Andrew Johnson, however, did not, and his particular course is going to wind up with its own unusual route to the White House, if very unexpected. The two men would, however, have rather significant exchange in the near future. But as a final man, Douglas's strongest competitor was actually James Guthrie of Kentucky, former Secretary of the Treasury, but even Guthrie could only pull in a third of Douglas's vote. Exhausted and seemingly hopeless, the delegates declared a delay and arranged to meet in the cooler, both literally and metaphorically, climate of Baltimore in six weeks. This provided some time for delegates to rethink their plans, relax their emotions, and perhaps for sober second thoughts to emerge. In addition, Douglas was not without support in the South, and six weeks gave them time to press their views privately and try and win over support. They even arranged their own delegations in some states to Baltimore, who hopefully would then be seated instead of the hardliners. In this manner, Douglas intended to carry out a kind of popular coup against the pro-slavery Democrats, dividing them and carrying the party by default. The problem, as it were, lay in the fact that the same politicians who'd walked out were once again determined to destroy what they could not control. Having smashed the northern democracy, they refused to give one more inch, even if it meant saving their party as a national institution. They declined to play the role that Douglas set out before them, even if it actually would have been for their own good. Once at Baltimore, they just walked out again, as before. 
To the slaveholding Southern elite, popular sovereignty had become almost as anathema as black republicanism. Nothing but pro-slavery views counted. Douglas and his supporters, now by default the Democrats for the entire nation, yet only a withered husk of the party that had once dominated the nation's political life for decades, had the slate and the platform they desired. But the victory now looked awful barren. Douglas, seeing the coming electoral struggle, would undoubtedly have noted that even a marginal victory would require an immense effort. Though he remained personally popular among the white northern working classes, he would face a brutal task challenging the surging Republican Party, and he knew that Abraham Lincoln was not a foe to be trifled with. Those who walked out of the party convention, however, did not lack their own plan. They united quickly to form their own electoral slate, putting at its head John C. Breckinridge, the contemporary vice president under Buchanan. Calling themselves the Southern Democratic Party, now more as formally than as an impromptu patronym, they more or less simply reoriented as many local party organizations as they could towards this quote-unquote new organization. And being without any northern support whatsoever, they simply put all their desires into the party platform with aplomb. This included the usual southern demands for slavery in all national territories and the formal protection of the nation upon the institution, which nearly every observer would have expected. That being said, an American who didn't follow national politics all that much could still have been surprised by one or two other positions. For example, the Southern Democrats doubled down on their long-standing desire to acquire Cuba. There is a deep history behind this point, which we may discuss down the line, but the immediate point lay in the fact that Cuba had a great many slaves. Southern Democrats believed, rightly or wrongly, that if they bought or stole Cuba from Spain, they could greatly strengthen the power of slavery in the United States. Likewise, despite most Southern Democrats paying at least lip service to the Calhounite ideology of states' rights, they demanded here that all states stop opposing the Fugitive Slave Act. This demonstrates more than just hypocrisy, though there was plenty of that active in national politics and the slaveholding South. For all that the Southern Democrats might appear united, deep divisions lay among them many had a much more flexible view of the role of the national government in national life. Likewise, the platform explicitly identified that immigrants, in the form of naturalized citizens, should receive full and complete rights the same as natural-born citizens, in opposition to the American Party. Regardless, and cutting out all the specifics, the Southern Democrats had walked into an election they could not possibly win, and perhaps it only slowly dawned on them what they had wrought. It may be that Douglas failed to prepare for this possibility because he understood what splitting the party would cause. This is why it caught him off guard. The action was surprising because it was so foolish. Either way, the Southern Democrats found themselves sneering at Republicans for being a mere sectional party, but they themselves proved to have only extremely limited sectional support just the same. Republicans didn't bother campaigning south of the Mason-Dixon line, and Southern Democrats found they had a similar void north of it. Unfortunately for the latter, the Republican Party leaders carefully calculated their path to victory, and they pursued it vigorously. The Southern Democrats had not, and while dominating most of the Deep South, they had no chance at broader success in the ballot box. That did not mean the Republicans expected an easy time of it, however, and they knew they would have to overcome a great deal of opposition on the way.
The biggest challenge turned out to be the sheer number of candidates. In no other election in national history have there been four separate parties with significant multi-state followings. Not even really the bizarre and contentious election of 1824. The situation is, to this day, quite unique in American history, and the parties scrambled to sort out their plans in the middle of political chaos. So this brings us to the attempts by each party to maximize their strength. The Republican strategy, simply enough, was to completely win the votes of all the free states. They didn't even attempt to run congressional candidates or campaign for Lincoln in most of the South in any event, and disregarded their chances of actually winning there though maybe picking up some support in a border state was possible. That being said, it was far from certain that they could achieve even this strategy. They faced aggressively racist attacks from, well, everyone. And in 1860, this was not only commonplace, but politically effective. Douglas Democrats asked, in language unfit to restate here, whether the so-called black Republicans wanted to enslave whites to African Americans in turn, and muttered grimly of even less pleasant ideas. These attacks undoubtedly had some appeal. But while it might have blunted the Republican message, such propaganda did not break it. Slavery had become too anathema among most Northerners, and such ideas were beginning to penetrate into the border regions such as in Missouri. True, most Northerners thought very little about equality in the abstract, but on any specific question, many were willing to consider policies that excluded slavery or even weakened legal racism. It may have been premature to discuss guaranteeing African Americans the vote, but at least the idea was becoming less crazy in the popular imagination. Stephen Douglas, North and South, took command of the official Democratic Party and tried to portray himself as the sole national figure in this election and the natural and rightful victor. Yet in reality, he couldn't disguise the fact that his own party had been broken in half, and he himself deeply despised in much of the South. He at least had the good fortune of being able to run support all over the country. But he also faced the deep disadvantage of this effort pulling him in many directions. That being said, he managed to recover some political momentum when his followers fused their tickets with those of Southern Democrats in a few states where the latter had little appeal. This gave some hope of healing the party breach, and perhaps just eking out a victory against the Republicans. Douglas himself took to the road, and gave speech after speech in a notable break with precedent. Although he was likely already feeling the effects of overwork, stress, and illness that would shortly kill him. Unhappily for Douglas, the issue of corruption raised its ugly head and helped wreck his chances. The Buchanan administration was poorly led from the beginning, but as it turned out, several administration officials filled their pockets with public funds. Bribes, stolen cash, and paybacks were all on the table in different ways, and the press began to tear the lid off it just as the elections were heating up. The most notorious offender would be John Floyd, who enabled scandals, conspired over secession, and was generally incompetent to boot, but we'll examine his role in events when we discuss the siege at Fort Sumter. The important thing for today is that even though Douglas had nothing to do with this and was rather hostile to Buchanan, it still tarnished the Democrats. Our next group is the Constitutional Union Party, who we mentioned in a previous episode. As the last remaining rump of the Whigs, they knew quite firmly they couldn't win the presidential election in the Electoral College. So, they didn't try. 
As the oldest and most conservative of the old guard, they at least knew the political score and the rules very, very well. Instead, their strategy was to attract enough votes to prevent any other party from winning the contest outright. If that should happen, the Constitution specifies that the House of Representatives would select the next president from one of the leading candidates, which is exactly what happened in 1824. In those circumstances, the Constitutional Unionists at least had a significant influence on events. They might be able to push forward their own man as a compromise candidate, or at least control the victor. However, in the event they often felt required to go hard on pro-slavery politics, since they felt strongest in Kentucky and Tennessee, and thus necessarily limited their own impact. To return to the Southern Democrats for a moment, they engage in their own but effectively pointless election race that appeared to fall into paranoid mania. They could, and did, easily attract the pro-slavery vote, and in the Deep South, slaveholders dominated politics, making them the natural choice. But without any real base apart from that geography, they lacked any coherent path to the presidency and risked losing all influence in Congress. Without a moderating factor, like, say, the Northern Democrats, the hardline pro-slavery and fire-eating secessionist wings dominated, and they ruined as they ruined the Democrats in Charleston and Baltimore. Of course, they didn't let anything like facts or common sense stop them. Breathless editorial after editorial and news reports arrived, one after another, to proclaim that secret Yankee saboteurs were, at that very moment, setting fire to buildings and poisoning wells, planning a mass uprising of slaves, and other fantasies. The fear monitoring had no basis, but in the 19th century that was hardly a problem for editors. This moment, and the political propaganda it spawned, is often overlooked, but is very important. First, did Southern Democrats actually believe this? It's hard to walk away without seeing this as a belief created to reinforce solidarity. The self-imposed political isolation of the Deep South created a siege mentality among its political leadership, the natural culmination of their efforts the last decade or more. The more they demanded, the more they lost, and the more they lost, the more they panicked and let emotions drive events. Here, in this moment, they finally completely isolated themselves from everything, and it became their ruin. When Election Day of 1860 arrived, it showed the nastiest of nasty shocks to everyone, except the Republicans. First, Stephen Douglas fought in every corner and had been quashed in every corner. He won Missouri outright and did receive the second highest popular vote total, but that was as far as his ambitions took him. The defection of the South made his candidacy barren. Breckenridge, leading the Southern Democrats, performed almost exactly as expected. He won the Deep South, and also oddly Maryland and Delaware, but that was it. With his 72 electoral votes, he couldn't win. In fact, he couldn't have won even if the Constitutional Unionists and Douglas had entirely backed him. Bell, of that Unionist party, for his part, only took the states of Tennessee, Virginia, and Kentucky, but in doing so, happily denied the Democrats a united South. The pair, however, had weakened Douglas on the West Coast and handed California and Oregon to Lincoln. In fact, the results were almost as good as the Republicans could possibly have hoped for even in their most fervent dreams. Even had all their opponents joined forces, the Republicans would still have won in the Electoral College. In the event, 
they held a comfortable majority of electoral college votes and a strong plurality of the popular vote. For Republicans in general, and Lincoln specifically, it was the justification for years of hard work and struggle to become relevant. It was a sign that they would not be leaving the national stage. It was a moment of success that appeared to be the high watermark, although later events would overshadow it again and again. Conversely for Douglas, the election results took the form of a shattering blow, not to his pride or even to his ambitions, but to his faith in the future of the United States. Whatever else he was, even in retrospect, Douglas did love his country, and he saw very clearly that some Southerners would try to secede, an insight especially significant because many or even most Southerners didn't know that they were about to secede either. Douglas therefore adopted a curious idea. He went south, not to campaign, but to give speeches extolling the Union, and calling for people to accept the election results whether they liked it or not. He received crowds, even after his losses and the controversies, he remained widely respected. But the men and women apt to listen to Stephen Douglas weren't the ones making decisions or just weren't listening. In a way, it was a whistle-stop tour much like Lincoln was about to embark upon, and we'll discuss that in the future, but with even worse results. That is about where we will leave off for today, because the same men who made the political mistakes in Charleston and Baltimore were about to make it again, and on a titanic scale. They failed to rule, and so as they always did, they chose ruin. But this time they would try to ruin the United States itself, rather than for one minute fail to get their way. To understand why they made this choice, next time we will explore the ideology of fire-eating secessionists. This has been the American Civil War Podcast. Thank you for listening, and I hope you'll join us next time.